0: This is the Monday, April 11th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore Hello, and welcome to the History Author Show. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, And of course, you can catch us on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, and many other personal audio outlets. Today, we're driving our time machine, wending through the mountain passes of southern France and across the blue seas of the Mediterranean to Monaco. Yes, Monaco. The name itself conjures up images of glamour and gambling, of royalty and race cars. But did you ever stop to think, how did it get that way? It's only about half the size of Central Park and the second tiniest nation in the world, behind only Vatican City. Yet it's played an outsized role as a destination of vice and just plain old good clean fun. Not just for the world's rich and famous, not just for people with old money and big long titles, but for the middle class and just regular folks, anybody who wants to try their hands the dice. Dealing the cards today is Mark Brody. He sends us on our way with his debut book, Making Monte Carlo, a history of speculation and spectacle. Mark is a lecturer in history at Stanford University, having earned a Ph.D. in modern European history from the University of Southern California, as well as a master's in French studies from our own New York University. You can follow him at Mark Brody on Twitter, and his last name is spelled... B-R-A-U-D-E. Okay, now that we've gotten our chips and are ready to try our luck, let's meet Mark Brody and talk Making Monte Carlo. I'm on the line with Mark Brody, author of Making Monte Carlo, a history of speculation and spectacle. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dean. Let's start where Monte Carlo really starts, at least as we know it today, and that's with Francois Blanc, this man of incredible vision that we meet sort of in this very old, almost film noir kind of way in the early part of your book. He arrives in 1863 And he doesn't really find much in Monaco. He finds a rural town, a few churches, a rundown palace, not much else, no hint really of the splendor that was to come that we will now think of as synonymous with Monte Carlo. You were kind of saying in Making Monte Carlo that I thought really captures this man, Francois Blanc. The saying is along the lines of rouge and noir, red and black, thinking of a roulette wheel, they win sometimes, but blanc, white, always. It Really an amazing figure here in your book. Give us a little taste here of how his vision a century and a half ago grew into the Monte Carlo that we know today.
1: Yeah, and that's really the the first half of the book is saying if there's anything more unlikely than the fact that Monte Carlo becomes as successful as it does— It's that François Blanc should be the person to bring them there. He was a man of rather humble beginnings, born in the provinces, and made his way as a professional gambler, actually, as a card sharp, and sort of learned the trade and figured out, as many gamblers do, that really the best way to make money in a casino is, of course, to own one. And he sets up in Monte Carlo, and Monte Carlo is really, it's not even called Monte Carlo at that time, but there's this barren patch of land, as you mentioned. And he has a vision, I think, that nobody else of his time did. And it's kind of obvious now when we have places like Vegas or Macau or all these other highly themed spaces, but he's really, this Blanc is the first person to really figure that out, that it has to be about more than the gambling, that it has to be more than about more than the casino. And he figures out a way to make people really fall in love with this town by setting up everything that has nothing to do with gambling.
0: We talked about the vision of Francois Blanc, and it occurred to me as you were answering that first question that he was really a man of many ideas. He was kind of one of those question-everything people, as we used to see in the old ads. He has gambling, and yet he doesn't focus on that. He's very fortunate. He's always sort of there ahead of the curve. For instance, he's poised with his imagination and his savvy to take advantage of the fact that suddenly there's going to be cheap mass printing. So. Instead of just printing up the posters, which most people would think, oh, okay, there's this new way to advertise, he innovates and he thinks, well, I'm going to get people to come here for something besides the gambling that Monte Carlo offers. So talk a little bit about some of these other clever temptations that Blanc uses to lure people to the French Riviera.
1: Yeah, I think you really nailed what's important about Blanc is that as an entrepreneur, and I think this is you see this with a lot of the great innovators and entrepreneurs of the modern age is he has this kind of left brain, right brain skill. He's definitely great at the numbers. He's very shrewd in that regard, efficiency, profits, all the rest. But he also understands culture and he understands the importance of culture. And his timing is great. He realizes that he has to position Monte Carlo as this glamorous place of escape. And that, that has to be a kind of visual message. And he does it through all these, you know, all the ads, all the posters and it's really about the space. The casino itself doesn't feature that much. It's all about come for the glamour, come for the socialization, come for the for the spa resort, and we just so happened to offer the only legal casino for hundreds of miles. So totally a savvy publicist. And that's what makes this history also a story of the early years of the mass press. Here's a person who wouldn't have succeeded and here's a place that wouldn't have grown as it did if it weren't for the mass press because it's appealing to people all over the world. The people of Monaco can't actually gamble in the casino. They're actually forbidden to do so. So the profits all have to come from outside. And so by its very nature, this is a place that has to have international appeal. And Blanc, as this guy who understands the press and understands the appeal of the railway, understands the coming of the motor car eventually, really sets them on that course. And as you said, that trickles down through the generations, other managers doing it
0: after him. You mentioned the railway there. That's one of the things that he does when he comes to really this backwater place. Again, you have to think of yourself, 1863, there's no train that goes there. There's obviously not going to be any planes flying in or buses cutting through the mountain peaks there. He has to get them there and he has to plan all of these things sort of at once. And it really is an incredible story of visions, of many different visions, of seeing that You can't count on any one revenue stream, I guess we'd say today. And again, all of these things, even to somebody who's not in marketing, today seems obvious to us. But this is really where a lot of it gets its start. You look at a place like Las Vegas, you can do a ton of shopping there. I went to Vegas, I guess, last year, and I was just struck by how much shopping there was and then how many shows. And you bring people there for other things. Whereas some resorts, when they only have gambling, they're really at the whim of Other things. I mean, anything. That's why people don't invest in airlines, right? Because they say (laughs) you have gas, you have the possibility of terrorism, you have oil prices going up or down, you have so many different things that could affect an airline. And so it's kind of the reverse here in making Monte Carlo. And so we get kind of that marketing sense of it. And then also in making Monte Carlo, you discuss a whole other side. And that's the changing culture here from... 1863, obviously, all the way up to the present day, but specifically after the American Civil War, we have the Great War in there, World War II. There's really upheaval in the social structure of Europe and of the world by extension. So discuss how this gambling affects the aristocrats here, because in the Victorian era, they kind of need a different way to show that they have their stuff. So why do they turn to games of chance and how does Francois Blanc lure them?
1: Yeah. And that's, that's an important turning point in the book. In the first half, we see these early years, 1860s, 1870s. And what Blanc did there was to appeal primarily to aristocratic gamblers, to people who are of noble descent, who have the money and the wherewithal, first of all, to get to Monaco and to wager for high stakes. And so the casino draws on this older history of spa gambling, which is that for hundreds of years, you had the nobility going to these resorts. And they would bet against each other. And what's interesting about that older style of betting is it wasn't actually so much about winning, strangely enough. In fact, you might even say it was about losing. A lot of it was this posturing, a lot of it was displaying that you were of noble bearing, and so money didn't really matter to you. So it was all about, you know, can I bet a lot of money and can I bear it if I lose in a kind of stoic and patrician manner? So this very adversarial kind of gambling. And Blanc transports that to Monaco. And then he, he does something so brilliant, which is he expands that vision to incorporate the middle classes. And he realizes that actually, and this is where he's different from all the other impresarios of his age, actually the profits are going to come from these middle-class gamblers. And it's going to be for lower stakes, it's going to be longer periods of play, less of this head-to-head combat, and more of you know what they call an industrial style of gambling. And that's where the game of roulette, which up until the 19th century wasn't that popular of a game, came to the fore. Blanc was the one who made that happen. Because there you have, you know, it doesn't cost a terrible amount of money to get in the game. You can play for a while and, you know, you might get a big payout. And meanwhile, the casino gets this very steady and small profit, but it adds up. And so what happens is that extends into the realm of lifestyle. And I think this is another point where Monte Carlo is important in, in a bigger historical sense is it's the mixing of this aristocratic class and the middle classes in a way that isn't really possible anywhere else. They're really rubbing shoulders against each other, you know, with each other. You could have uh, a prince of, you know, Russia coming, sitting across the table from, uh, you know, a, a merchant. And when it comes to laying bets, their money is the same right? Mm -hmm. And that is something new. And I think that both sides are forever changed after that. Their aristocracy sees some excitement in bourgeois middle-class life. And these middle-class gamblers, of course, see the glamour of aristocratic life. And so they both kind of mix and mingle and things change when they're in this resort setting that I think is quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, there are these social forces that are at play in making Monte Carlo. And the idea that across the green felt, everyone is equal as Eddie Albert's character says in Roman Holiday, it's always open season on princesses. So you could see these middle class clientele saying, oh, there's Duke so-and-so. Of course, we know that in that period, in the sort of latter half of the Victorian era, there people in Europe are kind of lousy with all of these titles. And so you would identify a lot of these people and you get to play with them. And the games become more democratized. People are able to sort of see how the other half lives, I guess, on both sides, you might say, to use sort of a contemporary for them reference. The idea for me when I was reading the book brings to mind James Bond, of course, because he's sort of this everyman. There's a sense that he is sort of just like us except he has this license to kill i guess that's the big difference maybe (laughs) many of us wish that we had one of those but he uh he's not really that different he doesn't have any superpowers he just it goes in there and with his skill and luck he will face down an oric von goldfinger at the poker game and that's why he always is there because that's what the game does you can have all the money in the world you can have all the breeding in the world but If you're not good at games of chance, if you don't have a poker face, you're not going to be able to win. So it really is fascinating, and I guess I said democratize. That's the word for it. It's just a way for Blanc to not make it smarmy. It doesn't seem like Monte Carlo has any of that smarminess that we associate a lot of times with some of these lesser, I guess, gambling places that are sort of just little fly-by-night things where people seem to be plugged into the nickel slots. So... With that James Bond idea, you have an interesting story about that. So lay that on us. What's your vision after writing this book about a character like Bond?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you described Bond in the way you did, because it captures some of the essence of that character and why it seems to fit so well with Monte Carlo, in that Bond has all the trappings of a gentleman, somebody who has these generations of being from a noble classes, right? He's, he talks the right way, he wears the right clothes. And yet, he still works for a living. He's still a, a professional. So he is that mix of aristocratic and middle-class that is so indicative of the, of the clientele of Monte Carlo in its early years. But the strange thing with, with James Bond, who is, when I go you know, on the road with, with this topic, everybody asks me about James Bond and Monte Carlo and this tuxedo and blah, 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 all that great stuff. He's actually never sets foot in Monte Carlo. James Bond, the character in the Ian Fleming novels never once goes to Monte Carlo. I think the association comes from Casino Royale, which Fleming actually set those gambling scenes in a fictional Northern town, a, a town in Northern France, where he locates it called, a, I think he called it Royale Les Um And so it's, it's quite far from Monaco. But I think what happens is once we get Bond on film, he retroactively gets put into Monte Carlo. So once, I think in the 80s and 90s, He starts showing up in films in front of the casino and it makes sense, right? That's just a place where a guy like Bond should be hanging out. So it's quite interesting to think that only when we made the leap to the cinematic, to the visual, did it really just make sense from a filmmaker's point of view. Oh, you got to put Bond in Monaco because that's where a guy like him would be meeting these arch villains.
0: It seems as if the ghost of Francois Blanc, had he been alive, certainly would have been whispering in everybody's ear that Bond should be there. He would have done anything he had to do to get them to make the film there, offer them a tax break, offer them free rooms, which he did very much here to try to promote it. He would put newspaper people in free hotel rooms and try to get them in there, I guess, this kind of thing to get some favorable press, sort of bring people there. Because again, you might not think that you wanted to go and gamble. So you have to tempt people with some of these other things. And it's just a natural, as you said, it's really an amazing synergy that they would be able to sort of independently find each other, this idea of Monte Carlo and of James Bond. The Blancs, however, are only one family, of course. I mean, it's a century and a half. So the other family that does go back that far is the royal family. And they had to show fortitude and vision really equal to the Blancs to try to adjust to the times, try to make sure that there was a comfortable existence here, a symbiotic relationship with the casino, but protect their own small populace. Again, it's only about half the size of Central Park, so I guess it wouldn't take much to corrupt the whole country. Things like keeping the people in the city-state out of the casinos, that could go either way. That could make them feel like they're being shut out or they're second-class citizens. So talk a little bit about them, specifically this idea of sweetening the pot for people who live in Monaco by abolishing the income tax.
1: Yeah. And that's actually, when I started this project, what drew me to it in the first place was this idea of how on earth do we have a principality, especially at the edge of France in the present day? How did they not just get sucked up into this bigger national project that was France or Italy on the other side? And then that led me to this Grimaldi family. And that's also a fascinating story, which is that before the casino, they were really on the verge of bankruptcy. They only had a few thousand subjects and really unlikely that they would go anywhere except for kind of being as I said, you know annexed into France, but with this gambling, you know they were a small place, and so they could legalize gambling, set their own rules, and that's exactly what they were trading on was come from France, where it's illegal to gamble, come to Monaco, and it's okay. it's that kind of escape of your own home country's loss is okay, and in fact it's glamour, and they really trade on that, and the family. Today, you know, I think the wealth is somewhere in the in the range of, of 10 billion. I'm not quite sure, but it's a fascinating story of royalty in the last 150 years that not only did they survive as a royal family, they actually became wealthier as opposed to people, for instance, in the UK, well, they just kind of hung on. They, had, they were already wealthy from centuries of wealth and weathered this storm of nationalism and democracy and somehow survived. But this Grimaldi, they really went from nothing to wealth over the same period of time, which is quite amazing. You mentioned that the tax break, that's 1869. That's six years after the founding of Monte Carlo. And I think that's really a concession to the people themselves. Again, only still numbering a few thousand. And it's just that, you know, there were fears in that time. And I think still today about the social ills of gambling and what would it do to the community. And here was a a way of saying, okay, stay loyal to us. We're all in this together. We're all going to get wealthy together, or at least wealthier. You know, that's a really strange story in a way, if you think about it. If you compare the, not quality of life, but I guess the level of wealth in Monaco to a place like Nice, which got joined at France at the same time, there's no comparison. I mean, they're, they're so much wealthier as this principality, which is goes against our total, you know, our understanding of history of nations that, that really the progress and modernity is all about more democracy, bigger nations, more power. And here's a place that thrived precisely by going the opposite route, by
0: being small, and by being, you know, having this authoritarian form of government. They weather World War I and the flu pandemic that follows. Those two massive cataclysms, they make the opulence of Monte Carlo sort of sour in people's mouths. I mean, they've seen these horrors of war. They've lost maybe whole families. There are some soldiers that come there that are recuperating that they they must think, imagine the horrors of the trenches and then suddenly being thrust into Monte Carlo where they're having this free skeet shooting, for instance, one of the attractions that they have there. So how does Monte Carlo weather this period when they're kind of out of fashion because the world has gone through these horrors?
1: Yeah, and that's the second half of the book Is all about this moment in the 20s where they have to reinvent themselves after the First World War. And it speaks to the openness of Monaco and Monte Carlo. If there's one word to describe this place, it's that they are open. The royal family has to be open to colluding and working with entrepreneurs from outside, which they did with Blanc and his descendants. And then once you get to the 20s, this place, which has been really the epitome of a certain kind of European glamour, now has to feel open to new ideas, a younger generation, and particularly an American generation. And so this paves the way for a second brilliant entrepreneur named Ovenet Léon, who we actually don't know that much about, but he's a young Frenchman who comes and really revitalizes the resort. And he does so by looking across the Atlantic. He looks to Hollywood. He looks to Palm Beach. And that, again, is something quite new, this idea that maybe the Europeans don't do it the best. Maybe we aren't the dictators of style anymore. Maybe these Americans have something to teach us. And for Europe in the 1920s, you know, that's relatively new and exciting. And that's the second great story of Monte Carlo's success is precisely that moment.
0: My guest is author Mark Brody, who you can learn more about by following him at Mark Brody on Twitter. His debut book is Making Monte Carlo, A History of Speculation and Spectacle. Publishers Weekly says, quote, Brody expands his doctoral dissertation, which examined the evolution of Monaco from 1855 to 1956, into an engrossing examination of how politics, personality, and publicity coalesced to transform a sleepy village into a luxurious playground populated with casinos and beautiful people. With those beautiful, wealthy people, Mark, came crimes, espionage, and more likely rumors of all of those things that were far beyond anything that was actually going on. I chuckle, but rumors of bad things going on can very easily sink a place like Monte Carlo. Luckily, there's not much violence. There's two small bombs set off in the casino 50 years apart almost to the day, which is an incredible coincidence. They just sort of sweep up all the glass and the roulette wheels are spinning again in no time. But one of the more sensational cases that I wanted to just have you walk us through sort of reads like an Agatha Christie Novel. It involves a trunk with blood oozing out from it. So, gosh, it, there's where a great mystery starts, right? So, tell us a little bit about that story.
1: That was from 1907. And what happened was this railway porter in Marseille, maybe a few hundred miles to the west of Monaco, discovers this luggage with blood dripping out that's been left by a couple of passengers. And he calls the authorities in and they open it up and they discover there's a woman who's been cut into pieces. It's quite gruesome. They eventually, through their investigative work, trace it back to this couple of con artists, a husband and wife team, who had been working in Monaco and had lured this uh, young woman to their villa so that they could steal her jewels. And then, of course, killed her and tried to dispose of the body in this gory way. But what was fascinating about that story, besides just the bare facts, is the way it was reported. I came across this in the archives, and it was just one of these amazing moments like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? A (laughs) full-page illustration of this grisly scene in one of the French newspapers and it's, you know, murder in Monte Carlo. But of course it wasn't about, I mean, it happened in Monte Carlo, but the scene they show is the discovery. And that's a trope that happens in, in the press at that time. they're really focused on police work as a practice and they want to know all about investigations and about discovery. So it's really the point of this discovery, but it plays into a lot of fears about Monte Carlo. The fact that it happened at a railway station, the fact that it happened from these con artist from who knows where and a woman who was visiting from somewhere else as well. She was Swedish. They were, um, I think the husband was Irish and the woman was French. It got to a lot of fears about Monte Carlo at the time, which was it's this international place where everyone's moving. Nobody has any roots. And that is scary, especially in France, which is all about trying to build this nation and this Republic based on civic bonds where you're supposed to know people and cooperate. Monte Carlo and Monaco, anybody can kind of come there. You can You can disobey the laws of your own home country. It's this kind of global elite. And that is scary, as I said. People in motion are scary. So I thought that was what was so interesting, particularly about that story, was the whole railway travel suitcase aspect of it. That really struck me.
0: One of the things that they do, by the way, if you get stuck in Monte Carlo, you talk about early in the book that... They had some jokes about, oh, they put this gambling house close to the Seine in Paris. So if you lost all your money, you could just throw yourself in. And that's kind of where Francois Blanc gets his very early start and his days as a card sharp and such. But Monte Carlo is not like that. They don't have what I think we associate a lot with gambling, which is organized crime. If you are tapped out of money, of course, you're not welcome to stay. And they'll give you a ticket home, I guess, is it? And uh, you just can't come back again unless you pay your debt. So it's very civilized, I think. And that's part of it. And so I can see where the fears of people would be played up and sort of, as I said, this very much Agatha Christie, you picture murder on a train that happens here to this woman. So there are some exciting stories like that, where, as you said, when you were doing your research, they naturally jump out at you. And by the way, I wanted to ask you for the listeners, you didn't spend all of your time in Monte Carlo, right? We were talking about being in the archives. Where were the archives that you were digging through?
1: Yeah, that publisher's weekly review, you know, this was based on my doctoral dissertation. So I was doing this research as a PhD student. And PhD students don't usually uh, have the ability to live in Monaco or Monte Carlo. So I spent a lot of time in Nice, and then I would go into the casino archive, which was my main archive.
0: Now, did you say stuck in Nice? Because those are not... No, 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 no. no. I definitely did
1: (laughs) say... I I, I had a great time in Nice. It was a very glamorous uh, kind of research trip there. I had a few months there. It was great. But I would come in on the train, and then I would go to this little casino. The casino itself has a small archive, and I don't know that anybody's really explored it for as long as I have. And it was pretty amazing to have this treasure chest of just all their memos, all their press clippings, all their accounting records, all their letters. I mean, I couldn't have done the research without that. But I did supplement a lot of that work with archives in Paris, archives actually in Washington, DC, because the, the OSS had a lot of files on on what was going on in Monaco, especially with regards to tax and tax evasion. I worked at LA at the Academy of Motion Pictures because I was interested in To Catch a Thief and Hitchcock. Huh. So it was really surrounding this project in, in a kind of global way because, or, you know, as global as the budget would allow because it's a global place. It's really a place that is all about people coming from all over. So I mean, with unlimited funds, I could have just gone on forever. I could have gone to London. I could have gone to, you know, St. Petersburg. Uh, not that I would have been able to read the Russian, but, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure that. All over the world, there are there are archival materials related to this place because it's just one of those places.
0: That brings us nicely to my next question, which is, in Making Monte Carlo, you quote Francois Blanc as saying, I am convinced that it is not the gold that brings the rich and artists to Monte Carlo, but rather the desire to free themselves from everything, to bet against fate. And this is why we must give them dreams, pleasure, and beauty. So what drew you, Mark Brody? We haven't touched on this yet. To Monte Carlo.
1: Yeah, it was this fascination with gambling. And everyone asks me, Do I do I gamble regularly? I'm not really that much of a gambler, but I think it's just one of these fascinating things that humans do. Why do we do it? What's it all about? So I knew I wanted to talk about gambling to write about it. And the casino space to me was so interesting. You know, why does it look the way it does? Why do the people dress the way they do? You know, what are all the strategies? What's the business behind that? And I was trained as a French historian. So that naturally kind of led me to Monte Carlo and to Monaco, which is this neighbor of France and so French in culture. And that was, I think, nine years ago, (laughs) crazily enough. And now, I mean, I haven't gone a day probably without thinking or writing or speaking or reading about this place. So very, very unlikely that I would, but it's become this kind of rabbit hole that I became quite fascinated by. But When you say, when you bring up that, that quote about dreams, that's, and then when I think back about your question before about this idea of the crimes and what doesn't seem like there's that much organized crime and it doesn't seem like it's that dangerous, those two things in combination are really at the key of the story and are really what kept me going, what kept me interested is that on the one hand, it's totally about glamour. It's totally about this image of wealth, this image of ease, this image of luxury. And on the other hand, once I started digging, I saw these very shrewd and conscious business decisions that were propping all of that up. So that if Monaco and Monte Carlo was relatively safe for a gambling space, that was precisely because Blanc, as this uh, former professional card sharp, knew that people wanted to find a square game. Because gambling up until then was very much this fly-by-night operation. You don't know what you're getting. You don't know who's cheating. You don't know uh, if the house is rigged in a way. He set this tone of, I want to show you gamblers exactly what you're getting. So he was very self-conscious and totally overstaffing the place with way more security than they needed, way more croupiers than were needed. And that was done just precisely to show... People, what they were getting into. Everyone here gets a square deal in a sense. And there definitely were crimes. There definitely were some dark moments, but those were really covered up. Those were really hushed up quickly. And as you mentioned, you know, this whole thing about if you run out of money, they used to help you pay for your train ticket home. That's not altruism. I mean, that's not charity. That's, we don't want you hanging around stealing. We don't want you on the streets being haggard or whatever. So, It's that fine line of, you know, this very serene, beautiful setting on the outside and then what's going on beneath that. That's really the heart of it.
0: In Making Monte Carlo, one of the other things you talk about, one of these non-gambling attractions people may be more familiar with is auto racing and got me to thinking, how did those gentlemen start their engines there for the first time? Because obviously Monte Carlo predates the automobile by quite a ways.
1: Yeah. And that's when you mentioned this Blanc connecting the the casino to the railway in 1868 as this key moment. That's when they start making a profit for the first time is now people can get there. And I think that actually plays into why Monaco became the site of the first race in a city. So the Monaco Grand Prix first run in 1929, that's the first race where cars are actually running through city streets rather than just on an enclosed track. And I think it speaks to this longer legacy of travel and transportation technologies being so vital to the resort. So that anytime there's some new development, be it the railway, be it speedboats, be it cars, be it airplanes, they get celebrated in Monaco. There's aviation displays from the very early years of aviation, there's speedboat races, there's car races, there's the rally which predates the Grand Prix. It's all about that this is what it means to be elite that we are the people who move with the most speed, the most agility, the most grace. And we come to places like Monaco because we can. So it's the celebration of mobility and the celebration of luxury that's wrapped into kind of the machines themselves and then the resort itself. So that if you look at the Grand Prix, what's so fascinating about it is the whole circuit traces all of the key social destinations in Monaco. And the halfway point of the race is, of course, the casino. Hmm. So it's a way of kind of giving you the history of Monaco in this little circular space, so to speak
0: there has been some social trouble. As you said, there's these sort of quickly swept under the rug or quickly taken care of. I want to imply that they're, again, they're not throwing anyone in the Mediterranean, really, which just seems incredible. You think that at some point Mm -hmm. there would have been a dark period there, but organized crime never gets its hooks in there to that point, and the government I don't think could survive that, I guess, being so small. But they manage it quite well. Karl Marx does come there at one point, I guess, looking to sort of take advantage. We get this idea of the beaches, which is also very new. Again, throughout the book, you really see this incredible social transformation that takes place. Suddenly now people are going to the beach. They're going in the water. They're learning to swim. We didn't have that up until sort of the early 20th century. People begin to just learn to swim as a matter of course. There is the three-hour revolution, which I thought Hmm. (laughs) just the name alone really demonstrates exactly what you said about how quickly they sort of nip problems in the bud. So, Talk about that a little bit and maybe mention Karl Marx coming there and not paying his own way as was his way, usually getting someone else to foot the bill. He's there for a couple of weeks. Yeah, so, so Karl Marx,
1: that was another one of these archival finds like, you know, I was just struck. Karl Marx is in Monte Carlo and what on earth is he thinking? He went there on the orders of his doctor because he was unhealthy. He had pleurisy in his lungs. And unfortunately, he actually died, I think, less than a year after being in Monte Carlo. But and he had things to say about the casino. You know, he, he felt it was evil and, and a representative of all the evils of capitalism. And he was quite spot on in a lot of his analysis there. But what was most interesting to me, aside from all his thoughts on Monte Carlo, was just the fact that he was there. Somebody with, with the ideas of Marx being in this place speaks a lot to the success of Francois Blanc's project, which was to make it about health. Marx never went into the casino. He hated gambling. He thought it was stupid. And yet he was there in Monte Carlo for his health on his doctor's orders, which I think speaks a lot to this idea that it should be a full resort that offers more than gambling. You know, having Marx there is a great segue into thinking about the social problems and the uh, social tensions and economic tensions that have been present in this place throughout its history, which is that you have this very small entrenched power block, which is the the government, the the royal family, and then the managers of the casino, and then you have everyone else. And there's a lot of back back and forth uh, battles that I trace, especially when it comes to this idea of who's going to get the jobs. Because as I said earlier, the place is founded on openness, founded on we're going to take everyone from all over the world if they have something to offer us. That extends to workers as well. They'll hire people from other countries if they have the right skills. And of course, for the small local population, that's not great. They want their guarantee of jobs. And so that bubbles up into this, what I called, and the press at the time called this three-hour revolution, which ultimately gets crushed. But that's toward the end of the book. So I won't give too much away about it, but it's kind of an interesting moment showing what I had said before about that for all of its glitter, there is some darkness and some tension beneath it all.
0: Let the record show that Mark Brody knows not to show all of his cards. I'm glad that you did that. That's (laughs) what we call a tease in the business, right? So (laughs) people have to pick up the book to hear the full story of it. There's many, many stories in there. I want to squeeze one more in just to get a woman's name in, and that's Elsa Maxwell. She's one of the amazing links in this chain in Making Monte Carlo, where everybody always seems to hit or stand on the right card. There's not many steps backwards, certainly no great falls backwards in time, their string of luck is pretty incredibly unbroken since the days of the American Civil War. So describe her role in your book. How does she pick up this torch and carry it?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it it actually, thinking back on how we've we've talked, it does sound like a very male-centric story, which is absolutely not the case. Again, with this idea of openness that I've been talking about, that extends along gender lines in that women have had vital roles to play in the management of the casino and in, in the publicity of the casino and in the clientele itself. Elsa Maxwell is probably, along with this guy, Renee Leon, that I mentioned, the entrepreneur in the 20s, she's the most important figure in the 1920s and ensuring their success during that time. And actually, if you go to the Monte Carlo Beach Hotel now, which is one of these wonderful hotels there, they have a restaurant called Elsa in her honor. She was really the one, she was this American a society figure, a self-made woman, a hostess, and a publicist. And she was really the one they looked to when they wanted to Americanize, when they wanted to have the influence of Hollywood. And she was the one that pointed them to this idea of a summer season, the idea that people actually want to suntan by choice. People want to swim, as you mentioned. That's all of her doing. She says, look, you've got this huge ocean right in front of you, and you're not making use of it. And so quite a brilliant woman and quite a fascinating woman in her own right. So I tried to squeeze in as much of her biography in as I could. And again, maybe I'll hold my cards here and just without giving away all of her backstory, say that she's probably one of the people that will stick with you after you've done the book and and you'll want to read more about her because she's just so fascinating and so trendsetting for her time. And the fact that they're looking to her in the 20s, I think in and of itself is remarkable. There are these princes and these businessmen who are all beholden to her advice and her ideas.
0: I think people just think of Grace Kelly maybe when they think of Monaco, but she's certainly not the only woman that's there. There's many throughout the book. And again, I don't want people to think that we're holding things back, but the idea is that you'd want to go pick up the book because we enjoyed it. So I know what happens to all of these people. So (laughs) I feel like I'm lucky. But again, with an eye towards the listeners and giving them a little something that they won't get in the book that we can share, I wanted to wrap up by asking you, Mark, if people want to visit Monte Carlo, if they are fortunate enough to be able to go there, give them somewhere to go with an eye towards the history of the place. Where would you send them or what would you have them go spend a few minutes looking at with an eye towards history and not just all the other things that I guess everybody looks at when they visit?
1: Yeah, and I think actually that Monte Carlo Beach Hotel that I mentioned is a really great place to kind of look, think back about the history because precisely because it's not the casino. That's the story of the 20th century in Monte Carlo and in Monaco. I think gambling nowadays accounts for something like 4% of their GDP. It has moved totally away from that. It's all about either these high-end banking services for people who are doing offshore banking or tourism and luxury. And so the Beach Hotel speaks to that. And you can also kind of reimagine yourself in the 20s there, which is when they build it it's got that vibe of, I would compare it to Palm Beach or those classic Hollywood sites that you can go to. You get a sense of this freewheeling life of that roaring 20s, you know, scene. One of the things that was quite opulent at the time is they built an Olympic-sized swimming pool right at the edge of the ocean. That's Elsa Maxwell's, Maxwell's idea. The Europeans couldn't understand that. Why would you want a pool if you've got the ocean right next to it? But it was this sense of sporting life, sporting culture, And, uh, again, so I think you you get a sense of the luxury and you get a sense of the
0: history if you go to a place like that. I'm thinking of the breakers in Palm Beach, also built in the 20s, and that's exactly what they had. And I never thought before of all of these resorts. Why would you have a pool right next to the beach? So these are the kind of things that Mark Brody has been kind enough to share with us here in Making Monte Carlo. The book, again, started out as a thesis, but you spun it into a good yarn. There were several times when I was referring to it as a novel, and I had to catch myself and correct it. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking me to Monte Carlo and for playing a few hands today on on the show.
1: Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure.
0: Again, the book is Making Monte Carlo, a history of speculation and spectacle. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase the book at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even bookmark our URL for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. I want to once again thank Mark Brody for joining us and bringing the thrill of Monte Carlo in his debut book. Remember to follow him at Mark Brody on Twitter, and you can let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDeed. Well, that's it for this week's installment of The History Author Show. So until next Monday morning's interview, Classical Wisdom Wednesday, or History in Five Friday. I hope you have a great and very lucky week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in an a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.